from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. On this episode of Newt's World, what should our global strategy look like in an age of renewed great power competition? And what must America offer to a newly empowered developing world when we're no longer the only major player. In his new book, The American Imperative, Dan Rundy makes the case for building a new global consensus through vigorous internationalism and judicious use of soft power. He maps out many of the steps that we need to take, primarily in the non-military sphere, to ensure an alliance of stable and secure, like-minded, self-reliant partner nations in order to prevent rising authoritarian powers such as China from running the world. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Daniel Rundy. He is the Senior Vice President, Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development, and the William A. Schreier Chair in Global Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Dan, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thanks for having me, Mr. Speaker. I'm one of your biggest fans and admirers. I'm also a listener on your podcast, and I love your podcast, so I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show today. Listen, I'm glad you joined us because I think you're exactly the kind of really practical intellectual that the folks who listen to these podcasts really get a lot from. And I know your own background is so remarkable, but I think it's useful for people to get to know you personally as well know about your book. So Talk a little bit about how you ended up where you are now and how you started in this business of thinking about the world. I was an intern for George H.W. Bush and worked on his reelection campaign as a volunteer in 1992. I worked in the Bush 41 White House as an intern. I loved it, and I knew I was a Republican, and I knew I was a conservative from that moment. And then I was thrilled when we took the House in 1994 under your leadership and I loved serving in the Bush 43 administration at what's called USAID. It's the foreign aid arm of the U.S. government. And then I was there for five years, and I managed an initiative set up by Secretary Colin Powell around public-private partnerships, working with the private sector around 
problems and challenges in the developing world. I then was at the World Bank Group for about four years. And so working on the World Bank on a variety of issues there. And I've been at CSIS, a well-known Washington think tank for the last 12 years. And I've served on a couple of advisory commissions during the Trump administration, one for USAID on giving them advice from outside folks. And then I chaired another committee on Africa for the USXM Bank. So I've had a lot of experiences. I lived overseas for a long time. I speak Spanish. I lived in Argentina. I've also lived in Spain. So had a chance to see a lot of the world, but also have had a conservative internationalist view of the world, really from a young age. Yeah, I mean, you worked in commercial banking at Citibank in Argentina, didn't you? That's right. It was really an eye-opening experience. I worked on Wall Street out of college at what's now Deutsche Bank. It was then called Alex Brown and Sons. And then when I met my wife at Harvard at the Kennedy School, I wanted to figure out if she was Mrs. Wright or not. And so I followed her to Argentina and I took a job at Citibank working in commercial banking in Argentina. It was a pretty interesting experience. and I learned a lot. It's a pretty serious effort at courting if you go all the way to Argentina to make sure that everything works out. And I've met your wife and she's truly lovely. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mr. Speaker. Yeah, that was the best decision I ever made. And the best thing that ever happened to me was meeting her. So I got my love life figured out at Harvard, but I also got my professional life figured out at Harvard. I met Andrew Natsios, who had run the Republican Party in Massachusetts in the 80s and had become head of USAID in Bush 43. And I had done some research work for him. And so he had me join his team in 2002 at USAID. And so I kind of got an honorary PhD in the international development or soft power business. So I've been in this work for probably about 20 years in different capacities. And I wanted to write this book because I've seen in the last 20 years a big change. And the big change is that the Chinese Communist Party in mainland China have the ability to compete with us in a number of different spheres. And I know you've talked about China being a major competitor. And what I would argue is that a lot of our competition, there's going to be some of its military. So I'm for peace through strength. I'm for a strong military and strong intelligence capacities. But we need all of our facets of American power. We can beat China and Russia. And I'd rather be us than them. But we need to have a strategy to confront mainland China over the next several decades in a number of different non-military spheres. So from your perspective, this is a very different world than the Cold War. It's a very different world than the Cold War. You know, I was having a conversation with Hugh Hewitt today on his radio show, and he said, Dan, I read your book and I disagree with you because you don't agree that we're in a second Cold War. I think my thinking's evolved. We're in something akin to a second Cold War, but it's different than the previous one in the sense that the Soviet Union didn't have the economic strength that mainland China's got. Mainland China is now the largest trading partner for something like 120 countries. So 25 years ago, we were the largest trading partner for 120 countries. Now the largest trading partner is mainland China. They have the ability today to put forward vaccines and things like COVID. They can put forward crappy vaccines, but they can move quickly. If we leave voids, they have the ability to fill voids in ways that the Soviet Union didn't necessarily have. So it's a much more treacherous and difficult competitor but if we have a strategy, if we work with our partners, if we leverage the private sector and we stay true to our values, we can beat them. So if they're that competitive, why are you convinced we can beat them? Well, I think we've got to first accept that this is a very serious challenge. 
And I think one of the legacies of the Trump administration was that he helped formulate a new consensus in Washington that China was a serious problem. And so I think there's now a consensus across the Republican and Democratic parties that we have a problem in China. And I'm hopeful that the new Gallagher committee, the new special committee on China that you're aware of, Mr. Speaker, in the House, will help the American people begin to get educated on what to do about this. I think we have a consensus that there is a problem. I don't think we have a consensus yet on what to do about it. And so I saw my book as a contribution as to what we can do about it. But I think ultimately, if I think about their vaccines, their vaccines were not very good. I think many people know this, but it took us a long time for us to get those Western vaccines, top shelf vaccines to developing countries. The Chinese and the Russians had a public relations field day for about nine months while we were slow to get off the dime on this. They have the ability to provide infrastructure. Now, if China wants to build some farm to market road in the middle of nowhere, Tanzania, that's fine. But if they build a dual use airport or if they build a port that can fit their submarines or, you know, they start controlling the digital infrastructure, the digital rails of the future controlled by Huawei and ZT, we don't want that. We don't necessarily have to compete with them dollar for dollar, but we need to marshal all of our partners and friends to enable an alternative in the infrastructure space or the vaccine space or the digital rails of the future space. If I can divide this into two parts, and correct me if you don't agree with this, it seems to me we both have a Chinese communist problem in that they are a country big enough and populous enough and developed enough to be a serious peer competitor. But we also have the emergence now of a sort of alliance of dictatorships and authoritarian regimes, which Putin and others are pushing, so that there's a collective anti-American movement that's a little more complicated than the Cold War was. I agree with that, actually. So I think there are two problems. I think one is the China as a major economic competitor. And then I think there's sort of this alliance of bad guys, as you've described. China's largely a full-on partner in, but likes to pretend they're a little bit apart from at times when it's convenient for them. So I think we have to confront both of these things. Whether there's resurgence dictatorship in Nicaragua, we ought to push back against that. What we ought to be aiming for is a world that are largely market democracies. And over time, if you look from 40 years ago to today, it's a richer place and it's a largely freer place. There's been some backsliding on democracy, but our fingers should be on the scale of democracy. And if we don't stand up for fighting corruption in the developing world, if we don't stand up for human rights, say for the Uyghurs in China, like no one else is going to do it. It requires American leadership. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. From your perspective, if you were able to talk with every single American one-on-one, what would you tell them they should be asking of the Congress and the executive branch? So I think the first thing is to say that we need to agree on taking a series of steps. So I think the first question I'd ask them is, are you prepared to cede the leadership in the world to mainland China? And so far in Washington, Mr. Speaker, I haven't found a single person, some of my Trumpiest Trumpy friends, I've never met anybody who said to me, yes, that sounds great. I'm going to hand over the reins of global leadership from the United States to mainland China. And I think if you start with that premise then I think it's an open conversation to say, okay, well, then there's some steps we need to take. One is that we need a strategy. I believe that it's going to probably require the Republican Party to deliver this strategy. I believe it's going to require a Republican president and a Republican Congress to do this. Second, I think we've got 18 or 20 government agencies that do various things that are kind of in the soft power realm. That's probably, let's agree, there's probably too many. There's a series of funny bureaucratic rules and regulations that ought to be looked at that have accumulated over several decades that are worth a significant fix. Then I think there's a series of adjustments having to do with where we put our people, time, and money. So I think we probably need to put a little bit more resourcing into making sure that Huawei and ZTE, the two Chinese Communist Party-linked companies in China that are exporting let's call it digital infrastructure and beginning to kind of build out the digital rails of the future in the developing world, don't control them. To the extent that when we show up for things like multilateral institutions, China is putting forward really competent leaders for multilateral organizations. In the Reagan administration, you'll remember personnel is policy. So if they put forward a really good candidate and that candidate wins, those folks then can control like who runs their technology, who they hire, A lot of the times when these mainland Chinese candidates win, the first thing they do is they kick Taiwan out of these organizations. Or they say, I want to hire this Chinese computer company to do the cloud computing. We want to make sure that the commanding heights of the multilateral system, I know that's a lot of words, but there's a lot of these multilateral organizations that are really important. And I know some people in the U.S. say, like, all those organizations, some of them are useless or they're going to infringe on our sovereignty. I understand those concerns, but what I would say is that these institutions are really important. They have a, control a lot of money. They set global standards on different things, and they keep a lot of sensitive information and secrets. And so we don't want mainland Chinese CEOs running those key organizations. If they want to run the International Organization of Tiddlywinks and Backgammon, that's fine. But I don't want them running the IMF or being Secretary General of the UN or running the World Bank which are really important institutions. Sometimes your listeners will know what they are. They've heard of them, but some of these are really important institutions. 
So we've got to be able to compete and win in these elections. And then I think we need to be a little bit more clever about who we recruit to come and study here in the United States. I think we used to be much more strategic about bringing future leaders from Indonesia or Africa. A lot of those people are now going to mainland China. What we want for these people when they become central bank presidents or CEOs in their countries to have Boston on the speed dial, not Beijing on the speed dial. You're really talking about a dramatically more organized and more energetic American effort than we currently have. I am talking about that. And I think that the frame is this competition with China. And then it's also this competition with sort of this axis of bad guys that you talked about. So I think we need to push back against the axis of bad guys and stand up for our values, stand up for democracy and human rights and fighting corruption, things that the United States have done for decades. And second, we have to be careful about what voids we leave in the world, because China is capable today of filling those voids. And so the most important thing is for us to identify where we're competing with China and to enable an alternative. We don't have to do it all ourselves. We can work with Japan. We can work with the Brits or the various organizations that we lead, things like the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank. These are institutions that we built and these are institutions that we own. And if we ride herd on them, they can be a force multiplier for American leadership. I'm very struck. I've been working recently on the Chinese penetration of our universities. And it's breathtaking. I mean, they've had a very methodical, very large project I know you've talked and thought a lot about the Confucius Institutes and the various techniques. Could you talk a little bit about the methodical Chinese effort to infiltrate our education, particularly higher education? They've written a lot of checks to a lot of our institutions. They've also sent a lot of people to study here. I think in general, having Chinese students study here is a good thing, but I'm conflicted. There have been a large number of bad apples who have been doing a number of bad things. Some have been stealing our intellectual property, and some of them have been bullying or trying to police other Chinese students who get a taste of freedom and say what they really think for the first time. These Confucius Institutes have been sort of a form of kind of enforced propaganda in terms of pushing a specific kind of pro-Chinese Communist Party line in universities. So I think It has been well thought through. I would argue that they took a little bit of a page from our playbook in the 1960s. We went out of our way to recruit people from the developing world in the 60s and 70s, and that paid a lot of dividends for us. We had two cohorts, two generations of public policy leaders, central bank presidents, prime ministers, CEOs of corporations, health ministers, ag ministers, who had all studied the United States, had a positive view of America. And so China has been doing the same thing. Yes, they've been sending people here. They've been trying to influence our system, but they've also gone out of their way to the developing world and say, we will take your students. They're the largest recipient of foreign students studying anywhere in the world is in China, not the United States. And so I worry about that. So I think we need to kind of police some of the very bad behavior that China is doing. My view is I would be very comfortable closing the Confucius Institutes. But I do think we should have some ability to have some Chinese students study in the United States. I'd rather have them study comparative religion than theoretical physics, to be honest with you, or English literature, because I think some of the more sensitive subjects, we've had a number of bad incidents. And so I think we have to think about how we're going to manage that. At the same time, Mr. Speaker, I do believe that 
someday down the road, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, we should be working towards China as a multi-party democracy. I know that sounds crazy in 2023. And a lot of people who are China experts say, Dan, that's crazy. That's not ever going to be possible. I don't believe that because Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait is a multi-party democracy. And so Indonesia is a multi-party democracy. Japan's a multi-party democracy. South Korea is a multi-party democracy. That says to me that multi-party democracy in China, mainland China, where they're at peace with their neighbors, something that's akin to a Brazil, right? A big Brazil that's a multi-party democracy that's not causing trouble. We have some ways of trying to help shape that. And one way is to try and bring as many of the Chinese elites as possible to the U.S. to get exposed to the American way of life and to the West. At the same time, like I said, there's some there have been abuses by them in terms of spying or mistreating their people. That is unacceptable. And we've got to stop that. I spent a fair amount of time in the Trump administration trying to get across how dangerous Huawei was and the whole threat of a 5G Chinese dominated system gathering up information worldwide and controlling communication. I found that the combination of the special interests of places like AT&T and just the bureaucracy's attitudes towards anybody getting them to do anything different. It was almost impossible to get people to realize how big a threat this is. I mean, have you had a similar experience? I would actually give you a lot of credit, Mr. Speaker. You were way early on this 5G Huawei thing because I've known you for a long time. And you were talking about this before it was a thing, as the young people say, or before it was cool. And so I actually think you did a really important service by banging the drum and being out there on this issue many years ago, because I think there is somewhat of a, at least an accepted consensus that this is a problem. We haven't fully gotten our act together as a country. Some of it is because of the bureaucratic issues, some of it because of perhaps some special interest issues. But I think you actually did something really important by calling attention to this when frankly, no one else really was. And frankly, it required conservatives like yourself, to kind of sound the alarm. No one else was doing this five years ago. You were doing this. And so I think we've made some progress. I think we still need to leverage new technologies so that we can get the next generation of tech. 6G isn't Huawei controlled. So for example, Mr. Speaker, I like Ukraine and I want Ukraine to win against Russia. What Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, they should defeat the Russians. And then we want them to be a wealthy, prosperous, full card-carrying member of the West. A lot of their tech sector, and it's a great tech sector, is built on Huawei technologies. My view is that going forward, we're going to have to ask the Ukrainians to take all of that Huawei infrastructure, pull it out of the ground and burn it. They need to replace that if they want to be a full-fledged member of the West. So I think you're right. I think there's been some progress because of voices like yours, but we haven't yet fully landed on a strategy yet. You see kind of half-measure answers from the Biden administration on this, and we're not doing enough. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You've said recently in The Hill that we should start Ukraine's European Union negotiations now. Why do you think it's important in the middle of this war to begin having a conversation about them becoming part of the European Union? And won't that actually deepen and stiffen Russian opposition? We've been running a big commission on Ukraine reconstruction here at CSIS for the last nine months. And I've done probably 150 interviews. We convened a very high-level commission of Republicans and Democrats, and we've done a lot of research on them. My bumper sticker after all this work, and you can take a look at the report, is that we need to tie all the reconstruction for Ukraine's ultimate accession into the European Union. The European Union has basically sent them a save the date, saying we'd like you to join at some point. The only way they're going to kind of change some of the corrupt practices and some of the special interest and crony oligarch behavior is to have some kind of massive carrot to kind of change their behaviors and change the way they think about themselves. And so I think you've seen this in other places, Spain, you've seen this in places like Croatia or Poland, as they've joined the European Union, it's like, what will you do to join the coolest fraternity or sorority at a university? What hazing are you willing to put up with to join it? It's sort of like hazing. It's more complicated than that, but it's like a big incentive for you to join something that's really attractive. My view is they're going through a violent, angry divorce with Russia after 400 years. They're changing their language. They're changing which Orthodox church they go to. They're changing what day they celebrate Christmas. They're changing where they get their electricity, where they get their energy and who they trade with. And so I think part of that is shifting. I also think, frankly, we ought to consider having them join NATO. And if they're not going to join NATO, then we ought to treat them like a new Israel. We don't have a treaty alliance with Israel, but we have something that kind of rhymes with a treaty alliance with Israel. And I think that goes back to my Huawei comment earlier. If we're going to have a new kind of technology partnership, especially in the, the defense world, we don't want that stuff traveling on Huawei wires. No way. Ukraine did have a tradition of being known as a pretty corrupt place. We are now sending them a pretty significant amount of money. What steps do we need to take to ensure that the American taxpayer's money is not just drifting into corruption? This is a really important question, Mr. Speaker. Thanks for asking it. Look, I think it's in our interest for Ukraine to win, and it's in our interest for Russia to be defeated. We have a series of what are called inspector generals. There's the State Department Inspector General. There's the Department of Defense Inspector General. There's the USAID Inspector General. And there's the Department of the Treasury Inspector General. They were given, as part of this last supplemental, a significant amount of money to make sure that they could kind of 
police and watch the monies that are being allocated by the United States and the American people to support the war effort, both the non-military assistance and the military assistance. I will say it is a corrupt country. There's an organization called Transparency International, and they rank countries by perception of corruption. It's not a perfect measure. It's like you perceive how corrupt you are. So maybe it's real, maybe it's not. But it's sort of on the same ranks as Mexico, Indonesia, Panama, and Kazakhstan. So it is a corrupt place. But I think there's sort of three narratives about corruption in Ukraine. The first narrative is the Vladimir Putin narrative, Mr. Speaker, which is Ukraine is so broken and so corrupt. It's a fake country. Give it to me and I'll run it because it's so broken. It's an obnoxious narrative, but that is in essence what the narrative is. The second narrative is a narrative I hear from the high level officials in the Zelensky administration. When I talk to them about corruption, sometimes they will say things like, well, when I hear corruption, I'm hearing Russian disinformation. Well, that's an unhelpful narrative too, Mr. Speaker, because we both know there is corruption in Ukraine. So we need a third narrative about Ukraine and corruption. The country shouldn't be defined by its corruption. It's a corrupt place, just like Chicago is a corrupt place. But they've done a number of things since 2014, since the revolution of dignity. They've really taken a much more serious set of steps. And it's sort of like if you lift up a rock and you find ants underneath the rock, there were ants before, but now you've lifted up the rock and you can see the ants. And so I think we should give them a little bit of credit for kind of taking some of this on. He's taken some steps recently. So I think we got to dance with the one we brung with. Like this is the horse we're with. But I think we need to have controls. And I think the current set of inspector generals have the ability to do that. And two, we need to continue to have ongoing dialogue with them on this. And as part of the EU accession, the EU said, if you want to become a member of the EU, there's seven buckets of things that you need to do to become a member. Five of those buckets are governance buckets, like anti-corruption rule of law buckets. So this EU accession is sort of the vehicle by which we can engage them to do things that might be hard for them. What we want is 15 years from now, Mr. Speaker, for them to have the quality of governance, if I can use that term, of, say, a Bulgaria or a Romania. I'm not looking for Swedish or Switzerland quality levels of governance in Ukraine, but I'll take Bulgarian or Romanian levels of governance. What is at stake for the U.S. if, in fact, Ukraine collapses and Russia wins? Oh, boy, it's really bad. I think your listeners, you have a really smart set of listeners. As I said earlier, I listened to your podcast, so I know your listeners will appreciate this. I think the stakes are really high in Ukraine. First of all, we've had a set of rules since World War II that says invading somebody else to kind of redraw the map lines is not accepted practice. So if we let Vladimir Putin come in and kind of redraw the European map lines to suit his desires, it's going to create an extremely bad precedent. China is watching this and they're saying, oh, well, if he can get away with this and all we do is send diplomats and wag our fingers and say that's terrible or that he says, well, I can stand the amount of sanctions that you put on me. What we want is for him to have such a bad experience with Ukraine of having invaded Ukraine and crippling his economy breaking the back of his military, humiliating him. What we want is that because we want him to say, oh my gosh, the Russians are not going to invade Ukraine for the next 200 years. It was such a bad experience. And we want the Chinese to see that too, because we want them to say, boy, did you see what happened to the Russians when they tried to do Ukraine? If we try and do Taiwan and that happens to us, we don't want that to happen to us. And so we want to have a weaker Russia means that China has a weaker wingman. And it makes it harder for China 
to invade Taiwan if we have a weaker Russia. So it emboldened Russia, emboldens China. But it also, there's a series of five or 10 other places in the world where there's some kind of really obscure border disputes. I won't list them all here, but there's, for example, this really obscure one in Guyana and Venezuela. The Venezuelans say, well, I'm 20 times bigger than Guyana. I'll just march on the obscure part of Guyana, two thirds of Guyana they think is mine. If we open that box up, it creates sort of a terrible precedent for kind of redrawing maps by military force. But the second is we don't want some really awful bad person like Vladimir Putin to be able to do this. I think the American people have a really strong sense of fairness. And I think the illegal invasion by Russia of Ukraine has spoken to the American people across the political spectrum, saying that this is deeply unfair. It's interesting and important. I know the Estonian intelligence report just came out. They have a real fear that if the Russians win in Ukraine, that within a very few years, they'll start putting pressure on the three Baltic states and Poland and Romania. And that it's not like this is a one-time moment, but this is if Putin learns is that force works, that we enter a radically more dangerous world. I mean, does that fit your sense of what's happening? Mr. Speaker, I agree with you. That's right. He's not going to be satisfied with just taking chunks of Ukraine. He's going to take a chunk of Moldova. He may want to take those Baltic states. There's been noises about Poland. He also thinks some of the lines in Kazakhstan need to be redrawn. So there's at least five places that he'd like to kind of redraw the lines of the map to suit his needs or his aggrandizement of a greater Russia or whatever his delusions are. We both have the immediate challenge of Putin and Ukraine. But as you point out in your new book, we have this worldwide challenge and we have to really think through a long-term American strategy and a system for sustaining it. We did that. You could argue that the Cold War runs from about 1946 to 1991, and we sustained it for 45 years because we thought it was necessary. And I think your new book is a real contribution to starting to think through what's the shape of this next struggle and what do we have to do? So I really want to thank you for joining me. Your new book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power, I think is very important for anybody who wants to understand both the strategic threats, but also what we can do to mobilize elements of soft power all around the planet. We're going to list that on our show page and encourage people to buy it. And Dan, I want to thank you for joining me. This has been a very, very, I think, educational and informative version of News World. Thanks, Mr. Speaker. It's a privilege to be on your show. Thank you to my guest, Daniel Rundy. You can get a link to buy his new book, The American Imperative, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.